Hello there, and welcome once again to Insight Peterborough. I'm Devin Wilkins. Insight Peterborough is a project of the Peterborough chapter of the Canadian Council of the Blind, otherwise known as the CCB. And as a matter of fact, our chapter will be having its meeting this coming Thursday, And so if you're interested in finding out more about the CCB, either because you have a visual impairment or because you might like to volunteer for us, then by all means send an email to ccbpeterborough at gmail.com. That's ccbpeterborough at gmail.com. Well, a couple of weeks ago, we heard about an app, a new app, that uh, was going to be available on uh, for all phones and that sort of thing, called COVID Alert. And uh, initially, we heard glowing things about it, about its accessibility, etc., etc. And then a few questions started to crop up. So I decided that what I should do is to try to find someone who could talk to us about the app from the perspective of someone with a disability. And I have found that gentleman. Michael Fair is in Toronto. He is someone who is blind. And he is an author and a software consultant. So I knew that he would be able to tell us about the ins and outs and ups and downs and pros and cons, and that is what he did. Hi, Michael, Hi. and welcome, welcome to the program. Hi, yeah, good to be here. So this uh, COVID-19 alert uh, sounds quite interesting, but there also seems to be some controversy about it um, Okay, can you tell us, to begin with, what it does or what it's supposed yeah. to do? Certainly. Uh, what it does, essentially, is it tries to alert you if you've been in close proximity to people who have reported that they've tested positively. So uh, it doesn't really use your location at all. It doesn't know where you actually are other than your region, like Ontario, like, like for example. It's, it's divided up by provinces. Oh, yeah. So it's a very wide area, um, and, and that's largely because of the privacy concerns that people have. So it doesn't invade a person's privacy? No, no, because it, it never shares your name or your address or anything like that. All that gets shared between phones that are close enough to each other, and they have to be really close, are basically random numbers that change every five minutes. And basically what happens is that random number is, is shared. And, and if it detects that uh, two phones are in close proximity for more than 15 minutes, then what happens is it, uh, it will log a possible contact. And if, if one of those people are, have reported previously that, that they've tested positively, then it alerts. It'll, it will alert anyone who's been close to them for 15 minutes or more that they might have been exposed to the virus. So it's, it's not an instant thing at all. It takes, you know, to, to be 
wouldn't even count as, a, as an exposure. It takes 15 minutes. Uh, you know, so it's it's not like it's, you know, logging everyone you happen to be close to for, like, brief instances of time as you maybe are waiting in a line or, or walking past people. Yeah. It has to be, be for an extended period of time. So that's... Uh, that's kind of, and then so by the, it changes random numbers every five minutes. So of course that means three different random numbers, you know, from the same phone, you know, would have to be detected before it would know that okay, this has been over 15 minutes. I'll I'll report this as a as an exposure. Okay. And how does it alert you? Well, it'll alert you by notifications. You have to give it permission to notify you uh, if if it. Uh, senses that it needs to and then uh, and the other side of this is too is that in order to be, uh, to know that that someone is positively tested they themselves have to report that to the app they have to get a one-time code from the app that they, then they have to enter it to say that I have you know tested positive and it, once you do that it will keep note of you as as having tested positive for the next 15 days. Okay. And it will tell people who are in close proximity to you after that point that, you know, that you've been around someone who has tested positive if it's longer than 15 minutes. So basically, it's, it's all on the honor system. Nothing, Health Canada can't sort of force people who, say, test positive to make use of the app or report to the app that they've tested positive. This is all completely under your control as, as a user. You have to be conscientious enough to run the app, and you have to be conscientious enough to, if you've tested positively, to tell, that, tell the app, go through the process, put in that one-time code to tell the app that you are positive potentially for COVID. Mm -hmm. And only at that point is, are you logged as positive, and you know, and, and people will be alerted if, if they're close to you for 15 minutes or more. So it, it's it's very uh, you know very minimally intrusive uh, in terms of, and, and when it's running on your system, it it, it uses low energy Bluetooth to contact other phones, so it doesn't use a lot of battery power at all. Uh, it, it's the same kind of thing that keeps your AirPods connected and things like that, other accessories okay. uh, like that. So it's very short range, and uh, it, it's detecting the strengths of the Bluetooth signals to tell how close other phones are to you. So it, it's, it's minimally invasive on your battery, and it's also it, the equivalent, if, if you're looking at the data cost of doing this, it's equivalent of an email, so very minimal data usage. Yeah. Uh, do you have any idea how many people have downloaded it uh, in the last, uh, <clears throat> or what shall I say, the first two weeks that it has been available? Yeah, it, it sounds like around a million, uh, at least a million wow. uh, so far. So it's being taken up, but, I mean, it's going to take a while to really penetrate, you know, for people to get over their hesitation to find out about it and download it. Uh, and then, of course, it's it's rolling out slowly to other provinces. So, uh, for example, uh, in Manitoba, I think it's it's not quite active yet. I think it will be soon. Uh, Ontario was one of the first to to sign up for this and get it active. And uh, so, basically, what happens is information is reported to a central server, uh, and uh, it, it, that central server maintains a list of the positive 
Mm-hmm. So that's that's where that data is. So every day you you get uh, you know when you're connected to Wi-Fi, so it doesn't you know chew up your data. You get a list of uh, basically contacts that are positive. So that the app knows which numbers to look out for that that would be positive uh, potentially for COVID, and so it can warn you. So it's very. Uh, very minimally obtrusive, and uh, it just runs in the background. You don't have to keep it, you know, in the foreground. You can just start it running and uh, and essentially leave it running all the time, and uh, it will just keep going and, and, and scanning your local surroundings for any close phones. It never ceases to amaze me how they can uh, make apps that will do stuff like that and that can be so discerning. Yeah, yeah. You know, it, it, it's, it's minimal amounts of energy, uh, so it is quite amazing, like how sensitive they can they can be in terms of, of detecting. Okay, this equals roughly two meters away or less. Like to, to even distinguishing that must be tricky. A lot's happening in the background yes. with this app, but the good news is it's really simple to use. They've really gone out of their way to make it accessible and very very simple. Mm-hmm. Start it running. You know, inst- installation is mostly reading through information about the app. Okay. It's only at the final of six steps that you actually give it permission to uh, exchange information with other nearby phones. You know, the random numbers. That's all that's exchanged. Mm-hmm. And then uh, the other thing is uh, notification. Give it permission to notify you, uh, so it can it can give you that. And then. Uh, tell it which region you're in in Canada. So in our case, that's Ontario. Um, And once you've done that, that's that's all it needs. It's it's very, very easy to install. And it even describes, like it has images all through the information screen, and they even describe the pictures for us. Yeah, they've really gone out of their way. So I I was very impressed with that as well. Yeah. Now you talked about other provinces. I know Alberta had one, but they weren't particularly pleased with that app. Do you think or do you know whether they're going to switch over to COVID alert? Well, I haven't really heard much about other provinces. I know others are going to join, but I don't even really know which ones mm-hmm. as yet. It's, it's uh, designed so that you know, once provinces agree to join up, then it, the app uh, will keep track of, of information from that province. Uh, and then, you know, people who are in that province will uh, will be uh, treated as active, and uh, you'll see that you know the, the keep track of the positive results in the central server, and they'll uh, they'll activate it if people are in close proximity. But right now, if you if you downloaded this app in a province that it's not using, uh, it, you could run it and everything, but it wouldn't do anything no. until the, that province has agreed. Right. So. I understand that you have to have a certain type of or a certain age of uh, phone to, like, uh, I have an S8. Will, will that do that? Will it still work? Yeah, that, S, that's Android. I'm, I'm a little less familiar with, oh, is that iOS, like an 8S? Um, 8S, yeah, yeah. Okay. So, yeah, that, that can still work. It's, uh, I have a 7, and I'm still able to run the app on that phone. I demonstrated that yesterday, actually, using that phone. Yes. So you, you could, as long as you have a phone, uh, either Android or, or iOS, that's, that's 5 years old or less. Okay. In that range. Any longer than that, and, it, and you probably won't have the technology in your phone to run the app. Right. So 
So they've tried to, to make it as retroactive as, as possible, but beyond a certain point, it's hard to, to do. Yeah. So it's kind of unfortunate for people with, like, really old phones who haven't updated in a long time. Uh, because part of it is, is the technology in the phones, and part of it is, is the operating system that they're running. Oh, yes. And, of course, past a certain point, you can't upgrade to the latest operating system. So that's kind of where people fall off the, the curve uh-huh. and uh, won't be able to use it. And um, can they download it on their tablets or iPads if, if they want to? Oh, oh yes. Uh, that should be perfectly possible. And, and it, now the tablet will certainly have low-energy Bluetooth, so you, I don't see why uh, it wouldn't be possible to, to have the same protection that you would on a phone. Uh-huh. Uh, it, it's a bit unusual to have a tablet sort of running things like that, but, uh, but it's certainly possible. And, uh, you know, I would expect the app to work equally well on, on tablets as far as what it's trying to do because it's, it's not really using uh, any cellular data or anything. It's, tr- it's strictly using Wi-Fi if you're connected to Wi-Fi and uh, low-energy Bluetooth for scanning and communicating with, with the phones around you. Oh, okay. Uh, and it is free of charge, isn't it? Yes, yeah, there are no costs involved for, for using this app. Uh, same with, with uh, other COVID apps. Uh, for the, I haven't seen anything that charges in this space yet. Mm-hmm. There's a couple of other apps, like COVID-19. Uh, uh, there's another app for Canada uh, that has more informational stuff and, and uh, system tracking and uh, symptom tracking and things like that. Oh. Um, and uh, that, that is a little more extensive. And, but I don't get the sense that they're going to merge the apps or anything. Uh, you know, they're two separate apps. And uh, this, this Covert Alert app is, is really designed to be just very minimal in function, small, uh, easy to use. Uh, and they're hoping that, that people on mass will decide to, to use it. And therefore, it'll, it, with greater numbers, it'll provide more protection. Oh, yeah. So it's really relying on goodwill. And, and, you know, most people, I think, you know, are going to want to do the right thing. They're going to want to run the app and, and know themselves that they're safe. Like it, it, there's, there's no no real downside that I can see mm-hmm. to the COVID alert app. Right. There's, there's no, no way it could be used against you in any way or anything like that. Uh, so it, it uh, hopefully it looks like they've done... But I, I think, honestly, if they had used more location data or things like that, they could have probably given us something that might have been more effective at, at helping, you know, with contact tracing and things, you know, if, if someone was positive. You know, if, you know, countries like China, they were able to do that. They, they'd have, you know, there's this very different sense of privacy laws versus societal yes. rights. And so you have a situation where they can they can really take massive steps to, to use big data to, to keep people locked down, to, to really, you know, tell who's, you know, being good and who's breaking the rules and, and you know, all kinds of stuff that there's just no way we, that would fly in Canada at all. Right. So, so because of that, the, you know, the tech, the people at Apple and Google got together and they came up with this way that, that was just minimally invasive offer what protection they could without invading people's privacy. Mm-hmm. And it's a pretty impressive idea that they've, they've come up with, I think. Certainly sounds like it. Um, and so when it alerts you that you have been close to somebody, 
does it uh, advise you uh, as to what you what steps you should take? Yes, that's that's what I've heard. Uh, I haven't experienced this yet. I've just, as I say, just gotten the app, so uh, I haven't been in, as far as I know, close to anyone who has COVID. But as far as I've I've read, yeah, that's what it's designed to do. So you won't be left hanging in a panic, right. you know, not knowing what to do. It, it will tell you. It will give you instructions to, as to probably to go and get tested and take steps, you know, to to minimize, you know, self quarantine, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, so it, uh, and, I, and I see no reason why that won't be, you know, just as accessible as the rest of the app sure. that I've seen so far. Well, that's great. Um, it, is there anything else that I haven't asked you about? Well, uh, the other thing I think of really is, is uh, of course, right now uh, the app is only available in English and French. Uh-huh. So you have to be able to understand either of those languages to really make use of it. Right. Uh, and there's, there is some concern uh, about that, that, you know, given uh, you know, the, the various languages spoken here in Canada by people, that, you know, there, there is some worry that, that people won't understand uh, all, the, all what the app has to say and, and they might not use it. So, the, you know, the app, the app is, is going to be you know, continually worked on as well. Like, as, as it gets out there, um, you know, they'll, they'll be addressing concerns like that going forward. Yeah, because there are apps in other languages, in, in more than just English and French, probably. So, uh, as the next uh, stage or the next edition of the app comes out, that might be one of the improvement, improvements. Yes, I, I would expect so. Uh, I'm not sure if they'll be able to address the concerns that people had about older phones not being able to use it, but certainly the language issues should be surmountable, I would think. So, yes. Uh, yeah, I, I think we'll see, see some development of this going forward. Okay. Well, thank you very much for chatting with us. Uh, I'm sure people here in Peterborough will be very interested in hearing more about it. So I appreciate your time. Well, I hope it keeps everyone that bit safer. They say it's all right. They say it's all right. Oh, it's all right. Have a good time. Cause it's all right. Oh, it's all right. Now we don't know who it's for. When the lights are low. When you move it's low. It feels like a move. Cause it's all right. Oh, it's all right. And now listen to the beat. And time to tap your feet Yeah, oh you got so Everybody knows that it's alright Oh, it's alright Well, you wake up early in the morning Feeling sad like so many of us do Oh, a little soul And wait like your door And surely something's gotta come to you I say it's all right. They say it's all right. Oh, it's all right. Have a good time. Cause it's all right. Oh, it's all right. Everybody clap your hands. And give yourself a chance.
At the end of that interview with Michael Ferris sounded a little bit robotic or robotish. I guess it was. There is a screen reading program called Deck Talk that you can use to uh, make it, you can make it sing. <laughs> I wouldn't have a clue how to do it, but I was a happy recipient of a few songs that deck talk sun. So every once in a while I like to throw one in. And I thought that was kind of appropriate uh, to uh, reassure people that uh, COVID, uh, COVID uh, alert is uh, as good as uh, it was originally uh, said to be. Uh, before we go into our next interview, I want to let you know that uh, the survey that John McNutt uh, promised when he was here with us a couple of weeks ago is now available. John McNutt is the executive director of the Person Peterborough Council for Persons with Disabilities. And he promised us that uh, there would be a survey having to do with the massive changes to the routes that have been made uh, as far as Peterborough Transit is concerned. And uh, so now if you have uh, an opinion that you want to express, this is the time to do it. If you don't have the survey in your inbox by this time, you should contact the... Uh, Peterborough Council for People with Disabilities, and uh, and they'll get you. Uh, they'll get a copy to you. Uh, so uh, this is the time to voice your your comments, your likes and dislikes, and that sort of thing. So don't uh, let this time pass you by. All right, now for our next interview, we're going to go back to uh, into our archives to July 22nd of last year, and uh, we had just celebrated, just barely finished celebrating the 50th anniversary of the 
first moon landing uh, of uh, Apollo 11. And uh, the media was uh, full of clips and that sort of thing that uh, would uh, bring back a whole string of memories to you if you actually were there to, uh, to hear about it and hear the astronauts speak from the moon. I, I was not down in uh, um, Houston or Cape Canaveral or any place like that, uh, but I certainly uh, stayed awake till the wee hours of uh, the next morning to make sure that I, I heard the uh, the conversations between Earth and the Moon, which uh, which were very interesting. Anyway, and I have copies of all of that, uh, which were, were really good. Um, anyway, um, David Mills was with us last year, and uh, just after that, so that's the anniversary that we refer to. And David Mills is the president of the Peterborough Astronomical Association. And uh, he was uh, with us to talk to us about how people with disabilities can enjoy the hobby of astronomy. And our guest this afternoon is David Mills, who is the president of the Peterborough Astronomy Association. Did I get that right, David? Yes, you did. Okay. Um, thank you so much for coming on the program and helping us uh, celebrate this anniversary. Well, thank you for having me. Now, you've done a lot of work in astronomy, haven't you? Uh, yes, I have. I started in astronomy when I was a young child. At five years old, my dad was always interested in space and got me involved in it. And at age 14, I got my first telescope. And at age... Uh, 24, I was on my first science expedition to the Galapagos Islands to study and photograph Halley's Comet, and then my first science expedition in the Philippines with the Canadian Astronomy Association doing total solar eclipses. Cool, that's great. Did you uh, happen to uh, be involved with the last to total solar eclipse? Uh uh, a, a year or so ago? Uh, yes. Uh, I actually got lucky. I was down in Casper, Wyoming, Super. down on the eclipse, and I had a uh, digital camera with a four-inch scope, and I got over 200 photos of the totality. Wonderful. And uh, you must have been real busy because that was only a couple of minutes in length for the totality, wasn't it? Uh, yes, it was a short one, two minutes and 40 seconds, but the atmosphere was eclectic. I met a lot of friends down there, uh, Chris Pine and a couple of other people who were working with the uh, U.S. Air Force uh, engineering divisions. I stayed with them for a couple of days, and they t took me in tours around Wyoming and met his friend Michael, who was part of the Mount Palomar Exotourism Group in uh, California and San Diego. All right. So I made a lot of friends all over the world. Oh, that's wonderful. That's great. And the reason that I asked if you could come and chat with us is that uh, I, for one, am uh, really captivated by astronomy and space travel, not the uh, science fiction uh, stuff necessarily, but the um, astronomy as it is and as we're learning about it over the uh, years mm -hmm. and space travel. However, 
as um, many of you will uh, know, I can't see a thing. So uh, there's no way that I'm going to be able to find out what's uh, going on up there. And uh, there are other um, reasons why other people with disabilities can't or haven't been able to use um, telescopes and that sort of thing. So um, I asked uh, David to come and chat with us about how people with disabilities can actually enjoy the hobby of, uh, of astronomy. Um, so you were telling me uh, earlier, David, about um, how people with mobility impairments uh, might not be able to get up to the telescope without uh, hitting the, the tripod? Uh, yes, that's correct. Uh, even uh, telescopes on pier have legs that strength extend out a couple several feet and if you have a chair or a walker and you accidentally bump the scope because these instruments have to be perfectly aligned with the earth's polar axis or the north star it can take up to 30 minutes to actually get it perfectly aligned enough that you can actually track and photograph so any slightest bump it can take you up to half an hour to recalibrate again wow but there are uh, other options if you can't get to the scope, you can bring the scope to you. And since you have a visual impairment to the point you can't see, modern-day telescopes, what a lot of people don't know, come with what they call onboard astronomers. With Because they're all computer-rated telescopes, they can actually talk to you and tell you what the object is that you're looking at. Cool. So even if you can't see it, you can listen about it. Yeah, that is super. Yeah. Do do they have those? Do you have those here in Peterborough? Or uh, yes, actually, uh, a company called Mead. They make uh, what they call computer-aided telescopes, and they, one of their more advanced series are about three or four thousand dollars for an eight-inch. They're what they call the light star systems. They're calibrated to auto track, mm-hmm. but they also have an onboard speaker system that, if you can't see the object properly, they can visual uh, auto. There's an audio recording about each one in their database, and they have about forty thousand celestial objects in their databases. Wow! <laughs> oh, that is wonderful to hear. And there are also apps that you can download for uh, to find out. Uh, like if I went out on my patio and mm-hmm. wondered what was up there in the night sky. There are apps that you can um, download, aren't there? Uh, yes, there's uh, Skywalk 2, there's Sky Safari on your phones, and there's also uh, other apps. But those apps also have, if you can't see them properly, and I'm almost 60 years old, so my reading distance is starting to go, so I appreciate the people who have visual impairment. Now, it's nice to have the ability to either include the print or have an audio uh, recording tell you what's going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. Um, Hopefully I can get more involved in that sort of thing. I'd really like to do that. Uh, And now um, you were also talking a little bit earlier about being able to um, watch what's happening on the screen of a laptop. Uh, Yes. Uh, There are several cameras today that you can actually, they're fairly reasonable, under $1,000, that are called astrocams, and you actually hook them into the back of your scope where you put the eyepiece. You, you take the pictures of what the telescope is looking at, and through a USB cable, you hook it into a laptop. 
So let's say it's something that we've actually talked about as a club. If we're doing a public event with a lot of kids, mm -hmm. and a lot of young kids don't know how to hold their head exactly in the right position to see with the eyepiece, having a laptop and have a group of about 10 or 20 people watch live what the telescope is actually seeing makes it a lot more easier and accessible than having people trying to struggle to see what they're actually seeing through the eyepiece. So it does make public events and people with mobility issues a lot easier. So like I said, if you can't go to the scope, have a scope come to you. Yeah, that's wonderful. And uh, so that that isn't something that you have yet, but you're thinking of it as a club? Uh, yes, uh, those Technology is not cheap. It's out there. Laptops yeah. about five hundred bucks, but unfortunately, the cameras alone, the good quality ones, are anywhere between one and three thousand dollars. Oh boy! And um, yeah, we're looking into doing that. Mm -hmm. And I'm also looking at uh, trying to build an observatory here in Peterborough. Wonderful. So what I would try and do is, ideally, I've got the business plans written up. It's become a teaching observatory. Mm -hmm. And exactly what we're talking about today is what I would try and incorporate into it. Uh, areas for people who have accessibility, visual impairment, and certain things. There's books in Braille. So there's nothing... No, there's nothing saying that you can't stop you from doing astronomy in Braille uh -huh. or even have audio tapes that just that tell you what's going on, yeah. describe what's going on. And today in space, like space.com, all the current events of NASA, you could also have an audio tapes for those who can't see yeah. dictate what's actually happening in space as it happens and give them play-by-play. -play. Yeah. Okay. Space.com. All right, that's a good thing to remember. I have checked out spaceweather.com. That's a, an interesting uh, website. Um, but I, I must check out that space.com. Yeah, it gives you all the uh, current events of NASA, SpaceX, and all the different probes that are up in space right now and going on. We've got another couple of probes going to the moon in the next few months. Yeah. We've had uh, several documentaries and events on the death dives to both Saturn and Jupiter. Ah, yes. And they've discovered life on Jupiter, and there's possible life on Saturn. Yes, and some of the moons of Saturn are very interesting. Um, Titan and um, Enceladus, right? That's right. Titan yeah. is the largest moon in the solar system. It even dwarfs our own moon. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And uh, and on Enceladus, they have uh, temperatures of minus 300 uh, degrees uh, Fahrenheit, but they have uh, hot springs gushing. Um, so um, scientists are quite um, uh, kind of... Uh, Wondering how on earth that can be. Well, there's certain uh, there's certain areas around the planet. Those gas giants have ex extreme magnetic fields, mm -hmm. and for example, Io on Jupiter intersects the Jupiter uh, Jovian magnetic field with temperatures of over a million degrees. Whoa. So even though, like you said, you can have a surface temperature of over 300 below zero. Um, you can also have volcanic activity, and they've actually photographed. Uh, extraterrestrial volcanoes, mm -hmm. which is pr uh, pretty interesting and gives a really good uh, dynamics on how life can evolve on planets around stars and gives us an idea of our sun's own life zone. Yes. 
Now, um, you were mentioning uh, public events, uh, just a little bit of a sidebar uh, <laughs> here. Did you folks do anything like that to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the moon landing this past weekend? Uh, no, we haven't done anything uh, like that. Uh, Canada Post has stamps out and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But we're International Astronomy Week and Space Week is coming up the end of August. We'll be doing a couple of schools uh, for kids 4 to 12, doing lectures for them. We've got the uh, January, July 27th, we're going to be up at Harrelltown Conservation Area with uh, the Ontario Con- Regional Conservation Authority doing a special event for them. Right. And we at Armour Hill back on August the 12th for the Perseid Meteor Showers. Oh, right. Yes. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Um, now, uh, one uh, area that I want to explore with you, do, do you find or do you know whether, you know, checking out galaxies and the stars and and that sort of thing is a good a therapeutic um, thing to do for uh, people maybe who are suffering from a mental illness? I would say yes, mm-hmm. because... You know, looking in the cosmos, looking at the wonders of the universe, you always see something unique. And it also gives an idea of putting ourselves in perspective of just, as Carl Sagan said, we're just a little pale blue dot in the shores of the cosmic ocean. And it gives you an idea of just how vast and just how wondrous uh, Mother Nature can really be. Yeah. Oh, that's that's great. It would certainly be something to focus on and uh, maybe by the end of your session there you could bring your own difficulties into clearer focus when you came back to earth so to speak one of the difficulties uh, coming back to earth with the early astronauts was the gravitational effects mm-hmm. uh, our bodies are designed to be under uh, gravitational stresses for our bones and everything yep. and in the 60s even in the 50s when they orbited the Earth for the first time with the Mercury, as when they came back to Earth, their bone density changed. Wow. They started to have bone loss in their spines. Mm -hmm. So they realized that in the early days of space exploration, human beings could only be in space for a limited amount of time. Now we're able to do things a lot longer on the space station because, number one, they incorporate daily exercise, strengthening, stretching, minerals, calcium, mm-hmm. and try to, if you don't have a gravity, you try and mimic gravity to make sure your your body maintains the proper systemic uh, calibrations. Uh, if you remember a while back when the Russian cosmonaut got trapped up in the original space station, Russian mm-hmm. space station, yeah. uh, he died uh, when he came back to Earth. He was up there for months. Oh, my goodness. And what happened when they landed... He couldn't get out of a spacecraft because his body had gotten so used to a zero environment, his muscles atrophied. And when they carried him off a spacecraft and tried to get him into a decompression chamber, his heart collapsed because his body literally, under the confines of air pressure, crushed under its own weight. Wow. Isn't that something? I did not know that. Yeah. And that's one of the main things that keeping our body strengthening, keeping, mimicking the gravitational effects so... Our bodies have 15% air pressure because the atmosphere of our planet is 15 pounds BSI. Yeah. We don't feel it because our bodies are equal to the outside temperature or the outside pressure. Right. 
And, well, the space, you don't have that. You have no gravity and, yep. and little pressure, so they try and keep the space stations pressurized to our bodies. And when you do spacewalks, you also have a pressurized spacesuits. Mm-hmm. That's number one. Number two, but if you don't exercise, your, your muscles atrophy. So that's why they always have to do treadmills. They do weights. They mimic uh, the gravitational rotation of the space station to try and mimic the Earth's gravity and maintain their muscle mass. And when that uh, Russian cosmonaut was uh, trapped up there, they they didn't do things like that, and they didn't have the uh, uh, pressure. Um, uh, no, in the old day, in the old days, they didn't have the maneuvering room, mm-hmm. and no, they only were supposed to be up there for a two or three week mission. Ah. And he was up there for six months, ah. and that turned out to be fatal. Right. But things have come a long way since then. Uh, things have come a long way to, uh, since then. We've learned a lot about how our physiology reacts to zero gravity and, and space. So s- doctors and astronauts and even cosmonauts have had to adjust their daily routines and incorporate and keep in mind that they have to stabilize their bodies under artificial gravity and artificial things to keep the bodies thinking they're on earth but they're not yeah and that way they have a lot more stamina a lot more endurance and the space effects are a lot uh, minimized to a great deal okay so now if people um whether they're disabled or not wanted to uh contact the uh peterborough uh, astronomy association Mm -hmm. and find out more about your activities and and that sort of thing, and maybe ask uh, questions that are um, more questions that I, I've asked you about how people with disabilities can um, enjoy the hobby of astronomy. How would they go about contacting you? Uh, we have a website, uh, peterboroughastronomy.com, and they can contact us there or myself, or my own personal email and personal phone number. But that's something that we've actually started to address in our own club as our age, get, all of our ages get higher, our, our yeah. overall abilities get less. <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, so, I mean, uh, it is, uh, the uh, local association is accessible, so uh, if you want to pursue this anymore, um, then we have here. Uh, that would be great. And uh, so you can find um, the uh, website, peterastronomy.com. Com. Okay, that's great. Uh, thank you so much, David, for, uh, for being with us uh, on the, uh, on the uh, show. I really appreciate that. Catch a falling star and put it in your pocket Never let it fade away Catch a falling star and put it in your pocket Save it for a rainy day For love may come and tap you on the shoulder Some starless night Just in case you feel you want to hold her You'll have a pocket Full of starlight, catch a falling star and put it in your pocket. Never let it fade away. 
Get your falling star and pull it in your pocket. Save it for your money. Save it for a rainy day. For love may come and tap you on the shoulder some starless night. And just in case you feel you want to hold her, you'll have a pocket. Pocket full of starlight. Pocket full of starlight. Catch a falling star and put it on its pocket. Never let it fade away. Catch a falling star and put it on its pocket. Save it for a rainy day. Save it for a rainy, rainy day. For when your troubles start multiplying. They just might. It's easy to forget them without trying. With just a pocket full of starlight, catch a falling star and pull it, it in your pocket. Never let it fade away. Catch a falling star and pull it in your pocket. Save it for a rainy day. Save it for a rainy day. Save it for a rainy day. Well, we have a little time left, so I thought perhaps we could listen to an interview that I did quite some time ago with Dr. Morris Sherman, who is a liver specialist down in Toronto. And we were talking about liver disease generally, but hepatitis C in particular. Well, first of all, Dr. Sherman, thank you very much for being on the program with us. Not at all. Can you remind us again how important the liver is to the human body? Well, uh, you can't exist without a liver, um, or if your liver's not working properly, you you really get terribly sick and can die, so it's, it's crucial. And I, I take it that the liver performs a, a number of functions in the body. Um, it's kind of like the chemical factory in the body. It takes all the things that uh, we ingest through our intestinal system and it breaks them down and if they're toxins, it excretes them and if it's uh, substances, chemicals that we need for the body, it reassembles them in the proteins, fats, and other substances that the body can use. Now, how do people, uh, you're right, the Canadian Liver Foundation is doing a campaign at the moment uh, called um, Could You Have It? How, what is hepatitis C and how do people, how can people get it?
process of cell death and cell regeneration uh, leads to the development of mutations in the genetic material of the cell, and this ultimately can lead to cancer. So the end result of hepatitis C for many, many patients is a cirrhosis, liver failure, and liver cancer. How do you get hepatitis C? Mm-hmm. Well, when we, hepatitis C was first uh, identified, it was recognized that this was a, transmitted by uh, blood-to-blood contact. And essentially what that meant in those days was needles, and it still means that uh, for the most part. Now the question is, where did the needles come from? Initially, we thought it was transfusion uh, with contaminated blood. Then we thought it was uh, through injection drug use, with sharing of needles. And all of those are, are, are true, although nobody gets it from transfusion in Canada anymore. But the majority, the vast majority of people who have hepatitis C did not acquire it through transfusion or through injection drug use. They acquired it from medical procedures back in the late 1940s, 1950s, uh, mostly vaccination practices with with, uh, instruments that were not properly sterilized between use. So uh, in many parts of the world, uh, the majority, and in Canada too, the majority of patients who have hepatitis C did not get them through some stigmatizing behavior. So can you have the symptoms for quite a while before you realize that you're sick? Well, the problem with hepatitis C and, and many other liver diseases is that you don't have symptoms until the liver fails. So you don't know you've got the disease until it's really very, very late in the, in the stage of the disease at a, point, at a time point at which it may not be possible to do anything about it. How long might you have had the disease before you begin to notice symptoms? It could be anywhere from 10 to 50 years. Oh, my goodness. So the Canadian Liver Foundation and other uh, liver-related groups have uh, recommended that people born between 1945 and 1975 should be tested for hepatitis C. It requires a simple blood test that only needs to be done once. common is hepatitis C at the moment? Somewhere in the range of 10,000 cases a year are notified to Health Canada. Wow. Uh, so can they, can okay. people, sorry? It's mostly not new cases. These are mostly people who've been infected many, many years ago and who are only now being diagnosed because somebody discovered some abnormal liver blood tests or because they're being screened or for some process, some medical condition, and hepatitis C turns up. Um, is, is hepatitis C something, how do you go about curing it if it's in the, still in the curative stage? Well, uh, these days we have very simple and very effective treatment. These days treatment is 
one tablet once a day for anywhere from 8 to 12 weeks, and the cure rate is better than 95%. Mm-hmm. That gets rid of the virus. If you have cirrhosis, it doesn't necessarily reverse the cirrhosis. So you, cirrhosis is the biggest risk factor for liver failure and liver cancer. So ideally, we'd like to catch people before they get to the cirrhosis stage, because if we treat them then, their risk of developing these bad outcomes uh, is virtually zero. And would you, if it had gone past the the early stages, uh, would uh, liver transplant or you know partial liver transplant work? Uh, yes, I mean these days we um, we trans well. It used to be that hepatitis C was the commonest reason for liver transplantation. Now that we have treatment, it's no longer the commonest reason. Uh, but liver cancer related to hepatitis C and other liver diseases is now the most common cause. And it used to be that um, people who were treated, who had a liver transplant with hepatitis C, that uh, if were not able to treat the hepatitis C, they tended to have much more aggressive disease after transplant. Now, of course, with the new treatments that we have, these very effective treatments, this is all pre- preventable. So if somebody has hepatitis C at the time of transplant, they get treated after the transplant, and uh, they don't have any further complications from hepatitis C. Or if the hepatitis C is identified prior to transplant, they get treated at that stage. And some people uh, actually no longer need a transplant. So treatment of hepatitis C is very effective. That's great. And so in order to get the blood test that uh, you're recommending, with, uh, sorry? Yeah, I'm listening. Yeah, would someone just go to their uh, family doctor? Ideally, yes, uh, and ask for the hepatitis C test. There has been, this has been somewhat controversial, uh, although all the liver disease communities, so the Canadian Liver Foundation, the Canadian Association for the Study of Liver, uh, and many gastroenterologists all recommend screening. There is a body known as the Canadian Task Force on Preventative Health, and they came out with a statement last year saying that we should not do screening. And the main reason, well, it was very controversial because their assessment when was it was reviewed by uh, liver disease experts there were many, many assumptions in the in that document which were quite wrong. And so they came out with a recommendation that there should be no screening, but um, it's, that's really just not tenable because of the, the, all the incorrect assumptions that they made in their study. Okay. So uh, some people might meet some resistance if they go to their doctor to ask for... They might. They might on the basis of that, but they can always quote the Canadian Liver Foundation or the Canadian Association with the Study of Liver, which is a, an organization of liver disease professionals, uh, physicians. They can always quote those recommendations. In fact, the Canadian Association of Study of the Liver came out recently with the guidelines on the management of hepatitis C, and they specifically say that there should be screening. So they can quote that article. Okay. And uh, if they still meet resistance, is there, are there any other alternatives? Um, yeah, I'm sure there are. They can go to another doctor, go to a walk-in clinic, and ask for testing to be done. Mm-hmm. 
some doctors may refuse point blank, but then it basically you have to shop around and find somebody who can do it. But this is not everybody, right? We're talking about people who were born between 1945 and 1975. Yes. Okay. All right. Um, is there anything else that we should be discussing that I haven't asked you about? Well, thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate this. I know you're a busy man, and I do appreciate that your time with us. Okay, you're welcome. Well, that'll do it for this week, folks. Thanks so much for listening. Have yourself a good week, and we'll see you in seven days. Bye for now.